Okay, this is what we call a cold opening. This is a little bit that plays before the actual theme here. And I want to do a short preamble to uh, just explain that there's a segment in this episode where Tim uh, and Ed discuss recent economic data about China. Now, we recorded that back in November, and I, I just wanted to say, for the record, that they were kind of ahead of the news. Tim and Ed, you guys were both on the money on that story, so... Just remember, you've heard it here first on Barstool <laughs> Historian. All right, well, let's roll with a the theme. Rebel yells, swollen jaws, and ancient butter. Today on the Barstool Historian, we're serving up a tasting menu of historical finger food and a rich smorgasbord of wild tangents. What few of us old corn fans are left, we do all we can. Okay, welcome everybody. Welcome back to the Barstool Historian. This is John sitting here in the Lion's Arms Tavern once again uh, with my friends Tim. Hello, Tim. Howdy. Ed, over there in Geneva, Illinois. Enchanté. <laughs> Ooh, may we? Is that the right thing to say? Well, anyway, welcome. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah sure, why not? Well, welcome back everybody uh, to the show. I want to thank everybody who's been tuning in recently. I want to, before I do anything else, call out a couple of uh, of listeners. We we heard from uh, this woman up in Rockland County, New York, uh, who said some very nice things uh, about the show. I think it was more about you, John. But was it more about me? I mean, loved the show, but the she, focus, she loved the show. The focus was on that great radio voice. <laughs> Oh, let's see where is. It? Oh, yes. Okay, so I'll read her. I'll read her note. This is a Mary uh, R. up in uh, in Rockland County, New York. She says, uh, "I'm laughing out loud at how you guys are enjoying yourselves and each other. <laughs> Plus, I just ordered a copy of The Guns of August from Amazon. If your friend's grandmother had a copy, the least I can do is read it myself. Looking forward to the next podcast. Thank you, Mary. Those are such nice, kind words." And uh, I'd also like to say hi to the good people of the Geneva, Illinois Public Library, who uh, I understand now have a link to our podcast on their internet. Thank you, everybody there. Um, if you could waive my fines from 20 years ago, <laughs> I would really, really appreciate it. I moved away without paying them. And uh, yeah, I don't know. Did, did, did they accrue interest? I say issue a yeah, bench <laughs> issue a bench warrant. <laughs> I'd like to cover a few things uh, historical in the news. News break. Well, I'm not sure if you guys saw the, the news that's been coming out of Denmark, but recently they have discovered this uh, in this lake 
the remains of thousands of Iron Age warriors. And from what they are revealing through the, um, the analysis, it looks like this was a religious site where uh, offerings were being made to the lake god for around 2,000 years from 8th century B.C., uh, all the way up to 10th century AD, so all the way into the early Christian era. So it appears that this is one of the biggest archaeological discoveries uh, of the past uh, few decades. And so the the grown-up adult thing for me to do would t- for me to talk about this news item, but instead I'm going to take the low road and talk about the sex lives of two <laughs> <laughs> two historical figures uh, who um, the interesting have made- road. Headlines recently, yes. So, so this I'll start with the most ridiculous one first. Uh, there's a historian in England, and she's been making the uh, the rounds on the talk shows, uh, and she is claiming that Queen Victoria actually had an affair uh, with her Scottish servant uh, uh, John Brown, um, and she is uh, she is basing this almost exclusively on the account of her personal physician, who one day stepped into uh, the room where uh, Her Majesty and Mr. Brown were standing and overheard the following exchange. Queen Victoria lifting up the edge of her dress and saying, maybe it is here. (laughs) To which John Brown replied by lifting up the corner of his kilt and saying, or maybe it is here. <laughs> and so this historian, and I don't have her name in front of me, unfortunately, uh, has really based uh, several articles on, on this and uh, making, making the point that, that unless they had some sort of sexual relationship, these two would never have been that familiar with each other. Um, but I think there's just something inha- inherently salacious about the term kilt lifting. <laughs> <laughs> I did not have sexual relations with uh, that uh, woman. That woman, Her Majesty. <laughs> not one time. Yeah. And then the other one, I think, uh, well, I think people, a lot of people have made a, a lot of uh, hay about this. The Warren G. Harding love letters. Um, these, are, these are really um, fantastic. So Warren G. Harding... Uh, the the disgraced president, often considered one of the worst presidents of all time, uh, only served for two years before he he died. But in that time, you know, of course, was uh, involved in the Teapot Dome scandal. Uh, the love letters that he wrote to his uh, mistress, Carrie Fulton Phillips, have finally come to light. They've been under wraps for fifty years, and the uh. The family of Warren G. Harding, including his great grandnephew, uh, this guy named Richard Harding, have really tried to block the publication of these to get this protect his legacy. <laughs> I can't say that sentence without laughing. Protect Warren G. Harding's legacy. Uh, he's been on C-SPAN talking about, uh, oh, well, Warren G. Harding actually was a was ahead of his time in terms of civil rights, but uh, but he's been unsuccessful. The letters have come to light, and the funniest thing about these really has to be the fact that he refers uh, to his male member <laughs> repeatedly, many, many, many times in these these letters. He refers to his male member as Jerry. Oh, <laughs> he's given it a name. What a, what a psycho! He can't just call it. 
like the rest of no, us. No, he can't. He's got to call it Jerry. And then his, his member ran for governor of California. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so he talks. Be, so, in his, so in these letters, these letters, he writes things like, Oh, dearest, I long for you once more to mount Mount Jerry, <laughs> or to climb the heights of Mount Jerry. Um, I'll, I'll just, he, he writes these love poems that are long. So I won't read a whole one to you, but I have to le- read the last stanza. If I'd had you today, I'd kiss you and fondle you into my arms and hold you there until you said, Oh, Warren, oh, Warren. <laughs> In a benediction of blissful joy. I rather like that encore discovered in Montreal. Did you? (laughs) (laughs) And my immediate reaction to this is I wish we had similar poems for people like Millard Fillmore or (laughs) Rutherford B. Hayes so that we could have lines like, oh, Millard. (laughs) Well, I I encourage you to Google Google this. At some point, you're going to see a picture of Warren G. Harding's Harding's, uh, wife. But uh, tell me if you think I'm wrong. I think... She looks uh, like Harry Truman in drag. Google it and tell me if I'm wrong. She's damn close. I'm going to sit right down and write myself a letter. And make believe it came from you. I'm going to write words so... So I'm going to talk about freak stuff. And, (laughs) you know... Real clickbaiting stuff, like butter, and one type of butter. Uh, specifically, the ever-delicious bog butter. And for people who don't know what bog butter is, well, first of all, you're missing something. Uh, second of all, it's essentially, believe it or not, butter that was thrown into bogs. I know, it's a pretty complicated name, uh, but... Uh, Butter that was thrown into bogs and just left. And this actually was a way of both preserving butter and other goods uh, because the bogs are uh, anaerobic. So uh, food would break down a lot slower, especially something like butter with a high oil content. And also, and this was largely in, in you know Britain and Scotland, uh, in Ireland especially, uh, it'd be a way of hiding it from raiders or, I don't know, you know, the government or whatever. Uh, invariably, some of this butter uh, was just forgotten or left or, or whatever, and it's been popping back up for centuries, really. Uh, it was a actual an economic item and uh, something, you know, not common, but something into the 1850s that was, uh, you know, in recipes, go find the good bug butter and... Uh, <laughs> And you can uh, make a good meal. Uh, I, I read about this in uh, one of the, the finest history websites in the country. That's right, crack.com, which... That's amazing to me that it was there. ...does nothing but make lists of bullshit. Uh, but yes, it, uh, I mean, they have butter, you know, I think 5,000 years old is the oldest. Some of these are, you know, not that old, like 300, 400 years old. I, I think sometime around the 1700s. The Irish stopped bearing butter and I guess started just eating all of it. Uh, so, um, but so they're finding it, but but people are actually 
people are actually eating it. Oh, absolutely. Oh. Uh, there is a uh, wonderful <laughs> picture that we will put on the website of a bunch of oh, extremely unfortunate Irish chilled school children eating <laughs> bog butter right next to the bog. And uh, the, the smiles do not look genuine. But it's, uh, it's apparently it's edible. It's just uh, usually uh, very rancid. So I, I have to tell you, I would do it. I would taste it. Oh, absolutely. It. I would not be able to resist. I'll, I'll, this, is, this is much more recent history, but um, uh, recently my son uh, was given a pack of, play, of, uh, of baseball cards uh, from 1988. And in that pack of tops playing cards, uh, I'm sorry, uh, baseball cards, there was the bubble gum, the stick of bubble gum, <laughs> nice. which was... Hard and brittle, <laughs> yes. even just like it was, even in the days was when it was sold. And so, uh, you know, we'll say, "Oh, can I, can I chew this?" And I said, "No, absolutely not. No, no, no. Put this off to the side." And then later that day, I thought, "This. I wonder what twenty-six-year-old, twenty-six-year-old bubble gum tastes like." And so I actually tasted that twenty-six-year-old uh, bubble gum. It. Immediately shattered into a thousand pieces, <laughs> thousand sharp pieces in my mouth. I, I darted off to the trash can and 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 spit it out. Um, but I tasted it for the rest of the night. <laughs> well, I tell you. So that was my bog butter experience. I, I don't That's as close as I've gotten, butter, dude. <laughs> I mean, that is that's an experiment that that's I could see that happening, but the bog butter. Uh, piece of it, I, I simply can't understand. I can't understand how you could do that to yourself. Well, my my father in law has a bottle of rum from the British Navy. Um, That's also different from World War Two. His his father was in the uh, was Mal- was Maltese and was in the uh, the Royal Navy, and he made off with a bottle of British naval rum. Sodomy in the lash. <laughs> yeah, rum, sodomy in the lash, and. And me. And <laughs> <laughs> he has the rum on a shelf, and I'm hoping that one of these years we will be able to, to take a sample from it because I want to taste with naval rum, which that, is which is probably rough stuff even then. Well, that reminds me, and we're getting a little off topic, but 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 th- this was a good story it, a couple of years ago that came out about the. Uh, case of whiskey that they found intact from uh, yes. Shackleton, Shackleton's Oh, endurance. yeah, I heard about that. And they were, I was so upset to hear that they were not going to try, like, they weren't going to crack one of those bottles open. They, yeah. They, and, I mean, that's just a tragedy. That is did, a tragedy thought, of biblical I thought, proportions. I thought they gave the actual um, distillery that was still in business one bottle. And I might be just imagining this wrong, but I, yeah, I, uh, I don't know about that, Ed. I didn't, I hadn't read that, but I, I, I think that that distillery did put out a version, a a Shackleton whiskey. Um, Uh, maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah. but, But I'm not sure. Um, in terms of the bog butter though, that's disgusting. And I just thought, 
of a parody of Sinatra's <laughs> It Was a Very Good Year. When I was 17, <laughs> I ate some very bad schmear. <laughs> anyway. The key is to eat from the center of the bog butter. <laughs> the part that does not has, has had no contact with the manure. Oh, I think that's, oh, the, that's the key. Have some of this, have some of that. Give them all a little pat of butter. I have something to say about what's been recently um, in the news, although it's been uh, occurring over time, recent bad economic data about China. And I have a big problem with people who espouse this notion that China is going to take over um, the United States and these are, you know, fondly known as declinists because you can't uh, talk about China taking over as the sole superpower or competing with the U.S. without speaking about U.S. decline. And I feel that this recent economic news, for example, uh, Chinese manufacturing is down. There are some numbers that have been out, uh, industrial output um, retail sales, uh, overall Chinese growth is uh, down relative to the last quarter, and it continues to decline. So I felt like I had the, the, the foundation to talk about my annoyance of those who have xenophobia. <laughs> so I wanted to read something to you guys. Because some of the xenophobia of today is similar to what we experienced in the 80s and 90s. With Japan. Correct. This is a quote. We should have a tax decrease. We should have China, and we should have Saudi Arabia, and we should have all of these countries who are literally ripping us off left and right. They should pay for our deficit. There is going to be a tremendous backlash against what China is doing to this country, sucking the lifeblood out of it because of our stupid policies. Our policy is to have free trade, but China is not reciprocating. Those are two different statements to the L.A. Times by Donald Trump in 1988 and 1989 that only replaced the word China with Japan. Yeah, that's incredible. I have some things to say. And I'd like to dispel the fear that China is on the rise and we have uh, we're being taken over. They own our uh, our debt and they're going to take over the United States, so on and so forth. First of all, a couple of stories, unlike Japanophobia of the 80s and 90s, which was kind of uh, it, it was more overt and cartoonish in many mm -hmm. ways, the, the xenophobia of today is more uh, news stories about solar panel dumping and um, China poisoning dog food, which it, that was in 2007 turned out to be not true. And solar panel dumping is actually good for the American consumer, uh, even though it destroyed the solar industry. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's good for the American consumer. Uh, there's a few things about, uh, about China. Number one, China is an aging nation. They have no Social Security. They have no Medicare. They have a tremendous elderly population that will weigh on the economy. That coupled with their one-child policy 
where they're not replacing the worker to produce and where an entire generation of people have to bear the burden that the elderly will place on the government does not exist. That's one thing. They have a major demographic problem. But there's an interesting comparison between uh, China and Japan. Not only the xenophobia, but also the economic models were very similar. In Japan in the 80s, they had property inflation and they had a housing bubble, actually. And the assets that these businesses owned were worthless, the, which diverted their income uh, to pay for worthless assets. And the government was not underwriting the bank loans. So when the businesses defaulted, the country went under. The, the Japanese government had a, an investment uh, model whereby they would simply invest in specific industries and not their own population. So at the end of the day, they would throw a lot of stimulus into the equation and it would get nowhere because these companies were worthless, but it would stymie uh, competition. Same thing is happening in China right now. There's uh, a debt problem, but they're dishonest about what their debt is, so we don't know. It's private debt. And they also have property inflation. So they've got a demographic bubble. They've got a property bubble. They have the same economic model as Japan. And finally, from a military standpoint, we just need to level set things. The United States, let's just look at naval power because that's the greatest projection of military capability across the globe. In the, in the United States, we have 10 aircraft carriers. Spain and Italy have two. China has one. China's aircraft carrier is a recent acquisition. It is a refitted aircraft carrier that was purchased by the Ukraine in the 1990s. This is not a burgeoning threat. There are a lot of other pieces to this puzzle that I think debunk the declinist view. But there is no reason to fear China. And in terms of the debt that they own, essentially, they need to keep the status quo with respect to treasuries and so forth. Because if they dumped it, the United States would, f would, would stop policing the Straits of Hormuz. We are uh, almost free and independent of our dependency on Mideast oil. But China is wholly dependent on Mideast oil. And we protect the trading routes and the shipping lanes. Well, they're getting uh, some uh, cheap Russian oil now. So they have an alternative uh, to that supply. So we might find out soon that uh, it's Europe that we're, we're uh, policing the Middle East for exclusively instead of China. That, that, is, that is possible. But as John McCain said, Europe, uh, uh, <laughs> Russia is a gas station. <laughs> and, um, you know, I think... Once the United, the United States is poised to, uh, to, it's on the cusp of an energy revolution. And once there is a transition to nat natural gas, which I think will happen, um, I think the Mideast is on the verge of collapse and Russia has a real problem. Oh, they um, absolutely have a real problem. And I, I, uh, I think we are in the middle of a energy revolution with, with oil fracking and whatnot and I, I think, uh, Tim, I, I agree with all your contentions. I would, um, I would hasten to say a couple things about it, though. 
I think uh, you're spot on with some of uh, your, your points about the aging population. One thing should, that should be uh, kept, kept in mind is it's still 1.2 billion people. And 1.2 billion aging people is still a hell of a lot of, you know, in their prime people from a, a number of different contexts, um, home buying, uh, consumption, uh, military uses, etc. cetera. Uh, Japan has been in a, a zombified state for, you know, two decades now. And, you know, no, people still think Japan, I mean, they're number three, number four in the world in economic power. Um, I think China's falling into the same kind of traps that Japan did. I think unlike Japan, who was lived in denial for a good decade, I think China knows this. So I think they have the opportunity to claw their way out of it. I don't think they will because it'll be uh, unpopular. But ironically, a lot of the cheap oil prices that we are uh, somewhat responsible for with fracking might help China out a lot uh, in uh, a couple of those areas. Okay, so recommendations. So let's talk about the things that we're reading, watching, things we want to share with everybody else. How about I start? So I've been reading this book. It's called Danubia, A Personal History by Simon Winder. This fella, Simon Winder, is uh, a true barstool historian. He would fit in well here. He's actually, uh, he's, he's not a historian uh, by training. He is a, uh, he's actually worked in publishing for many years. And he has written a book for himself, for his own amusement. And he is attracted to the uh, bizarre, the freakish aspects of the history of the Habsburg Empire. And that's what, this, <laughs> that's what makes this book fun. It is, not, um, it is not at all serious history. It is not at all uh, scholastic in any way. He revels in some of the details about the inbred Hopsburgs. Uh, he, I've just, I'm, I haven't finished this book yet. I'm about two thirds of the way through. Have you seen the paintings from Spain? I mean, in Spain, they get unbelievably inbred. I mean, oh like well, the it, lip it's, is but, it can, but it's it's you you can't draw the line between the uh, the Austrian and Spanish lines because uh, I've just been reading this section about the the wedding in 1666 between Leopold of, of the uh, the Austrian line and uh, Margarita Teresa of the Spanish line and basically this is this is just this is so freakish and horrific but both of them are the last ones standing of their respective lines the Spanish and the and the Austrian lines Leopold of the Austrian lines and, Margar- and Margarita Teresa of the Spanish lines Margarita Teresa and this is just hilariously uh, described in the book. I mean, maybe hilarious isn't the right word because it's just, it's tragicomic. Mm. Uh, so Margar- Margarita Teresa, like her mother, she is also marrying her uncle, uh, Leopold of Austria. But those two are the last ones standing because the others died very early. Uh, I think Margarita is one of six. Uh, Leopold is one of seven. Everybody else dies uh, no surprise when you have this uh, genetic time bomb. And the, the description of the ceremony that, that occurs in, in the, uh, it's the Hofburg court, which is the Habsburg's grand plaza there, uh, where they have 
this huge pageant with all these horses and sort of allegorical figures that they bring out on carts. And then the yeah, climax of this ceremony horses? is where Leopold, young Leopold, rides on this horse, vaults over a couple of things uh, to go greet Margarita Teresa. As, as Simon Winder describes it, uh, <laughs> Leopold was no oil painting and Margarita Teresa wasn't much better. <laughs> he says, you know, he basically describes both of them as having the characteristic um, swollen Habsburg jaw, jaw and Leopold's uh, protruded so much that when it rained, it filled up with water. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if when they looked in the mirror, it was like that old uh, 1940s, 50s film, The Enchanted Cottage, when they looked at each other, they saw nothing but beauty, but they were actually hideous. No, I think it's probably closer to the, the silent, uh, the Lon Chaney uh, Phantom of the Opera, where she finally pulls the mask off of him and he's this hideous creature. That or... Remember the Twilight Zone episode where the twist oh, at the yeah. end was That's they had the pig faces? Yeah, I think it's somewhere between those. Yeah, it was it was legendary even at those, the time. Those two, yeah. Hashburg lip, uh, just like the bulging eyes of the uh, yeah the, the, uh, the English chin. royalty. Yeah, the, that the, even you can see in Queen Victoria still the well, well you know. W- w- but in any case, the book is Danubia by Simon Winder. Uh, it's a fun read, and he has a fun time talking about people like Rudolf II of the Habsburg Empire, who, who kept, uh, I think it was cheetahs, at his hunting lodge, and he went <laughs> hunting with cheetahs, and he talks about uh, when dwarves were in vogue in court. <laughs> and wait, wait, they got out of vogue? Oh, well, actually, it depends on where you are. I, I actually was in, I mean, I was in the former Yugoslavia and, I think it was 1996. I went down to Slovenia, uh, which had, you know, at that well, point wait, was... Well, wait, wait, John, John, we got we to wait and uh, parcel out your stories as a soldier of fortune. Oh, you know? yes, exactly. Very slowly. Well, yeah. this is... It's a long, long <laughs> uh, log Well, yeah, this, this is when I was working for Radovan Karadzic and... Uh, uh, no, I was, down in, I was down in Slovenia, and the strangest thing about the a very strange country was... How prominently dwarves figured in advertisements, <laughs> billboards, television commercials, well, print ads. The, you know, but they were they were everywhere. They were everywhere. Well, they were being catapulted everywhere. And it wasn't like a Christmas thing either. It was I was there around Easter time, and and there were dwarves. <laughs> and and even in like I was stayed in this uh, this sort of communist era hotel that was. Uh, had a, I remember it had a communal toilet that was just made entirely of steel. Uh, but in the breakfast room, there was a big mural, uh, a black and white picture of about a dozen dwarves uh, <laughs> forming a pyramid. And the one at the top was holding a big platter of meat. <laughs> I remember sitting there trying to eat and thinking, this is just really, I don't think I have an appetite. <laughs> <laughs> Go eat, well, eat meat. So it all comes. It all goes back to the Hopsburgs, basically. Definitely not I, dwarven meat. I'm Tim, trying to piece this together. It's going to give me nightmares. <laughs> <laughs> How do you think I feel? Good I lord. There.
So Tim, what are you reading? What are you? Well, so, what are you reading? What are you bearing dwarves? But um, so, what are you reading and watching these days, Tim? That you can recommend? Well, John, um, <laughs> I went really formal for a second. Yeah. Uh, nice and artificial. Well, well. First, let me recommend "In the Wake of the Plague" by Norman Cantor, who uh, I read in preparation for this podcast. But <laughs> the thing that tickled my fancy this time around <laughs> was just stumbling upon a website researching something that John and I keep near and dear to our hearts, a book that I bought off of Cowley Road in Oxford, (laughs) known as the Oxford Annual for Scouts, which we could just do a podcast. We could could read stories from that that book. From that book. um, It's disturbing and comical. Uh, (laughs) But... The Lord Baden-Powell scouting manual would also be good, too. That, that would be good. That is... Uh, but as an Eagle Scout, I don't want to... Um, besmirch Lord Baden-Powell? I, su- I don't want to besmirch the uh, <laughs> Boy Scouts. They have a tough time as it is. Um, but I will say, in searching for a funny topic for recommendations, I was paging through the Oxford Annual for Scouts, and I thought, well, let me... Put it in Google and see what happened. <laughs> well, what happened was I came upon the archives for Spectator magazine, which is a British popular magazine from published from 1828 to now. They, they have digitized and scanned all of their material from 1828 to present. So... I had a field day at the office <laughs> just kind of researching, you know, everything that uh, I find really funny, like the Boer War and things like that. It's Boer War is not funny, but uh, there are things about it that are. <laughs> and I was looking for those things. Um, and I happened to... That pop- handsome Jan Kruger, let me just tell you. <laughs> oh. <laughs> 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 that Kruger. Um, <laughs> we had a we had a, a I'm sorry to direct, they just reminded me that we we had a professor in college, uh, <laughs> Professor Green, who, oh, um, who 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 one time in the middle of a of a lecture in the Boer War had to stop and say, I just have to interject and say, if there was ever a truly unattractive man, it was young Kruger. <laughs> he was just a beastly looking character. <laughs> <laughs> okay, since John has said that, since we were discussing bubonic plague, Professor Green described plague. You know, he 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 led up to it. Nobody knew what he was getting at, and it was nine o'clock in the morning. Uh, and he would ask questions like, Mr. DeMarco, if this were the yeah. early mid-14th century, I'd be dead. How would you yeah. feel? It's over. Oh, I don't know, Professor. Uh, I'd probably be pretty smelly, pretty poor. Mr. DeMarco. If this were the 14th century, you would be dead. Your family would be dead. 
<laughs> Your house would be burnt to the ground. <laughs> Everyone would be dead. I can't believe you didn't get flung oh, for oh. laughing. <laughs> there was one where we were, we, were, um, we, had, uh, we had actually read uh, Heart of Darkness. And we were talking about, uh, you know, Africa at the time. He was talking about just how terrifying a place it was for, for Europeans to go into. And he said, <laughs> if you were a European, European and you're traveling into this dark continent, you would have been assaulted by the, the, the foreignness, the terror, the sheer bestiality. Of the place. And the moment I heard him say, bestiality, I could feel Tim's eyes on me. I remember that. Across the room, looking to get my attention. Because I knew that if I, I remember shielding my eyes, looking down, thinking, if I look up, Tim's going to be looking at me and I will not be able to hold my laughter in. I I don't know. We got off on a wonderful tangent. (laughs) I just want to conclude my recommendations uh, as i said spectator magazine but i want to draw your attention <laughs> to i happened upon a criticism a of uh dickens bleak house oh. <laughs> from 1853 where they completely lambaste him and destroy his novel and a couple of things that are really funny about this is First of all, for all English majors who are struggling through Bleak House, and I know you're out there in our podcast universe, (laughs) if you read this critique, you all realize that Dickens was as difficult to read in his own day as he is now. But the, uh, the criticism bemoans popular sentiment versus critical acclaim which is really funny. <laughs> they, they, they say uh, if, if Dickens had just come on the scene, they would really like it. But since he's so popular and he thinks he can sell uh, these books anyway, he's fallen down on the job. <laughs> uh, it, it's really, really uh, quite funny. Um, so I would recommend going to the Spectator Archive and looking at this review and... You can. I need to see that. Go into the search engine, and you can find so many things. Uh, if if you are a scholar, an avocational scholar of nineteenth century Britain, this is a is just a wealth. It's rich. Um, I I happened upon an article that was written about British courage during the Boer War. And it was just the meanderings of someone pondering British courage at that time and uh, trying to dispel any notions uh, that Britain had been emasculated. <laughs> um, because when I, when I have ten men right here who would jump in front of flying bullets at any occasion. Really, really... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this, this, this is this is rich, so I highly recommend it. So they were there by his desk while he was right. writing. Uh, here they are. Uh, Kill them. <laughs> shoot them. Shoot them, both. Anyway. What makes the Sphinx the seventh wonder? Courage. What makes the dawn come up like thunder? 
Ed, recommendations. Yes. Well, my recommendations are, well, first of all, Dickens. He was an overrated <laughs> Um, I, uh, I lived in Dowdy Street. I lived at his former residence. I've read his books and it's, yeah, it's hard to get through. And in it case, is a bleak but, house. Uh, <laughs> you know, well, it ha- is a bleak Having read several, world. he's, he's one of my favorites, hacky but Bleak House, uh, of, of the many books I've read is, it's lower on the, uh, on the list. You know what? I, yeah. Yeah. But sorry, go ahead. Go but, ahead. But, uh. Any case, my uh, recommendations, and we'll put it up there. It's something unconventional. It's uh, crack.com had a uh, mind blowing thing that uh, things that you can try right now, and one of them was the bog butter. It will take you two minutes to see a uh, Confederate war cry, at least look at bog butter. Listen to Greek music from 2,000 years ago. I think it, it is a, a ton of fantastic, you know, give it a one-minute look uh, historical I, I say that I, I, so I stopped I, everything I was doing when you sent me that link to the, the Confederate yell. That is an amazing film in, in so many ways. To see these old men, Civil War veterans, it, it really uh, taxes the imagination to, to imagine these very same men fighting in the Civil War. And it is just plain hilarious to see them do that rebel yell again. Ladies and gentlemen, I have the pleasure of announcing to you that we are going to make an effort to repeat the old rebel yell. One, two, three. I was surprised by how unsurprised I was by the yell. It sounded exactly, exactly as I imagined. You know, to think that the, you know, maybe the last time those guys made that sound, mm. they were they were charging down Union soldiers. A, a a really amazing amazing film, and then the Greek music it was kind of enchanting, wasn't it? I mean, the fact that they actually they got, got the notes. Those, yeah, they they kind of figured out, uh, you know, just used based on relative positions of those uh, of those. No, most. I mean they, they had little yeah, yeah. little things. But that the Greek music a song a song from a husband yeah. to his dead wife on her funeral uh, yes stylus. It is pretty haunting to hear that music from from that far back. Especially since it wasn't really a um, just a a generic like oh here's a it was a yeah. from a husband to a dead wife.
You know, uh, this is really completely strange, but the whole essence of the rebel yell reminded me of uh, my mind went right back to 1991 <laughs> when um, I, wa- I, I watched the ticker tape parade of the soldiers coming back from the f- first Gulf War. Uh-huh. And here in New York, in New York, were you there? I was there. Wow. And that was a very important moment in American history in the post-Vietnam era. And I remember feeling the import of it. I I could feel it. It was really extraordinary. There were collapsed jets that were strolling down Fifth Avenue. Mm -hmm. They did not spare anything. And Ed, when I when I saw the rebel yell, I thought I thought of the sad poetry of human history that the engine of history, it could be said, is war. And when you look at the waves in your lifetime, uh, when you look at the last veterans of the Civil War marching in parades in the 1930s or mm-hmm. And you think about, in today's age, the veterans of World War II who are dying, and those are the stories we were told as children. It, it, it's a sad poetry of, of human history that um, its progression can almost be told in the waves of soldiers marching in different cloaks. You get the sense from watching that film that there's an urgency. We've got to capture this now. Because these guys aren't going to be here, and and we're going through a wave of that right now. With you know, unbroken the book you mentioned in the last podcast definitely feels like that. You know, this we we've we've got to capture this guy's story like before before he's gone, and and uh, you know, uh, there's only a few years left that we can capture this from the first hand account. You know, we've been talking in this episode about uh, ancient bog butter. We've talked about drinking Shackleton's whiskey. And it got me thinking, guys, what other foodstuffs from history would you want to sample? Well, I would like to discuss um, <laughs> a recent scientific finding uh, that, that's really gotten me uh, very intrigued. Apparently, someone kept a McDonald's hamburger for roughly 12 years and they kept it out in the elements and it didn't age a bit apparently it smells funny but it looks the same so are you saying that's what you would pick you would pick that burger i would like first to try that burger and then I would like to wash it down with some grog (laughs) (laughs) because the burger uh, might have some properties that could, um, you know, frankly, cause me ill. And uh, I've heard uh, for hundreds of years that grog, uh, which is a combination of rum, uh, really bad water, um, 
some citrus to prevent scurvy and some <laughs> other wonderful um, uh, w- wonderful ingredients uh, can really uh, wash down a good rotten burger. So that that's so that, you'd pick that. Well, okay, Ed. What about you? Do, do you have a do you have a less masochistic choice? I, I, <laughs> well, you know. This is the Barstool Historian, and I was looking at uh, some, uh, yes, less masochistic uh, thoughts than ancient burgers and old grog. I mean, grog's what mutinies were made of, man. But That's true. Yes. There's a couple things I, I think could uh, come to the top of my uh, historical drinking wish list. And here's the thing. All three of them are available to drink now. Uh, they found a open, unopened uh, bottle of Roman era wine from the 300s, uh, and it was the reason it, it still existed is it was mixed with olive oil, so the olive oil sat on top. Ah. So the wine still exists. So no one obviously is going to drink it, but I suppose you know, hey, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Someone might. Somebody must have. Yeah, someone might yeah. be able to. Sure, why not? Why wouldn't you? Uh, the second one is that there uh, is I, – I never knew this until I started looking this up. Uh, in Bremen, Germany, they have what's called a Raskeller, this government cellar uh, that was originally to supply people with you know, booze, wine and beer and stuff like that. I mean it, it dates back a thousand years. What's remarkable about it is they have several humongous wine – Barrels, oaken barrels. The oldest dates back from the early 1600s, and the others date back from the 1700s. And when I say date back, I don't mean the barrels. I mean the wine. The wine dates back from then. And apparently, while unfortunately the 1600s wine is completely vinegar and undrinkable now, the other barrels of wine from the early to mid-1700s are actually drinkable. And... More to the point, they don't sell it. They give small bottles out to wow. friends of the the city. It's like a bit like in the key to the city. You get a little bottle of their wine. Uh, so that would be fantastic. So if I'm able to, I don't know, save Bremen from terrorists or something like that. Yeah, I'm, I'm working on that right now. I got some contacts. Uh, Just make sh- make sure you bring enough for us. Yeah, well, yeah. Come on, save Bremen yourself. Yeah. <laughs> I thought we collectively as a nation did that. Uh. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, true. Save them from themselves and also yes, bomb exactly. them out into the stone. No, age. we didn't need to, we didn't need to do that whole Marshall plan. That was uh, that was optional. Yeah, <laughs> true enough. Exactly. Uh, so yes, it's Rudsheimer Apostelwein from 1652, which is the non-drinkable. And the 1727 version is nice and drinkable. Lastly, when we're, 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 we're talking about uh, some of my favorite drinks, uh, champagne would be uh, among my top favorite drinks. And about three years ago, they found a shipwreck uh, in the Baltic Sea off the Aland Islands oh, between Sweden that. and Finland. And they recovered. Uh, it, it was probably 1820, 1819, something like that. They recovered 120-something bottles of champagne that were on their way from France to Russia. And the cool thing is, most of them are from Veuve Clicquot, which is still an ongoing label. 
some were from pretty good champagne yeah yeah my wife hates it <laughs> but i i don't mind it uh some were from uh Heidesek, and i believe the other actually the balance 50 percent of them were from a champagne house that went extinct in the 1830s so yeah i think i would take a bottle of each of those and uh, the cool thing is, I mean, it was at the bottom of the Baltic, so it was preserved in like 35 degree wow. water for hundreds of years. They opened a couple up and they drank it and it was perfect. And the interesting thing is, if you drink champagne, you're used to dry champagne, and it was a little sweet. All of them were a little bit sweet. And that's kind of a style that went out of fashion in the last 200 years. But the coolest thing about this is they auctioned them off. They auctioned like half of them off, and they were going for like $50,000 a bottle. So I'm not saying it's realistic that I get my hands on one of these, but it's possible. It's probably just got another right person. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, Reminds me of... uh from Stettin in the Baltic <laughs> to Trieste in the Adriatic, a bottle of champagne <laughs> resides below the Iron Curtain. <laughs> you know what? The, the Tim 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 did the the Winston Churchill his go to Churchill. Uh, it reminds me of something that I thought about when Winston Churchill visited Madeira in 1950. He had a grand old time. He just was he was out of office. Uh, but he was doing his, you know, post-war, everyone except my own country loves me and, re- and tour. Uh, so, his paintings. Yeah. So so he went to uh, he went to Madeira and they had a grand uh, ball. And in his honor, they, and if you know anything about Madeira, Madeira is probably the longest lived wine. It, it goes on forever. I mean, it loves heat. Um, it's mixed with grape spirits. It's like sherry. I mean, you could age it for yeah. hundreds of years. So they opened up a... I believe a 1779 Madeira, big bottle of Madeira. And he himself served all the guests. And each of one, he told them something that happened around the same time that this was vented. Uh, Marie Antoinette was but a young bride when this was vented. You know, so, so that would be to be at that party, especially that would be pretty cool. So I wasn't even yeah. going to say anything about it. But your your uh, impression, I had to do. Had to say something. My go to. I, 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 I didn't have to think about it for myself. I would choose. Mammoth meat, woolly mammoth meat. Nice. Uh, because think about Wilma! this. <laughs> and I would eat it Fred Flintstone style on a gigantic on the leg, basically. But think about it this way: there were easier prey, I'm sure, to, to catch than the largest land mammal on Earth at the time. So that meat must have really been sensational. <laughs> think about it. So that's what I would have. But I also was thinking, you know, what what food would have to be just absolutely perfectly cooked, perfectly prepared, absolutely delicious in order to achieve uh, certain uh, political aims? So I thought of the food poisoned by Lucretia Borgia. <laughs> if you're going to poison an entire dinner party, that food... It has to be food that they will just devour without any prodding. It would tip them off as she kept on telling them, hey, why don't you try some of this crumb cake? <laughs> <laughs> and no one really wanted crumb cake. So so if there, if I could be guaranteed of an antidote, I would want to have dinner with Lucretia Borgia because I bet the food would be great. Well, I think actually that McDonald's hamburger was part of that meal. I 
I can believe it. I'm sorry. I got one one uh, note on your mammoth thing. Do you know the Explorers Club in New York City? I do know it. I have stood outside of it. They, they, um, they managed to never. They managed. They won't let me in. The, uh, they managed to serve a small piece of mammoth meat in 1951. Uh, their what? annual How is that dinner. Possible? They mined from the uh, Siberia or the Arctic. <laughs> that elephant yes. was wearing a wig. Yes. They ate a bit of Dumbo. 250,000 uh, years old. Yes. Yes. Yukon Valley. They found it. How did it taste? Um, looking at the reviews, uh, I, <laughs> were, are there Yelp reviews on the mammoth meat? <laughs> well, well, here, here, Slightly gamey. I noticed some freezer burn. <laughs> here, here's some. Here, no, I guess here's some. The uh, Explorers Club. Here, here's their menu for that night: uh, Pacific spider crabs with legs long enough to feed ten people each. Green turtle soup. Bison steaks. Cheese straws, which seems kind of weird, but and mammoth meat. Well, I I haven't paid my dues in a while there, so they haven't let me in. So, uh, but anyway, well, listen. Before we shove off, I, yeah. I really feel um, <laughs> as a committed bar stool historian, <laughs> I want to just talk about grog for just a second because Ed, uh, you know, you said something very important, which is. You know, that it was the cause of many mutinies, and indeed, that is true. Uh, it also was uh, the savior of many <laughs> ships, and and uh, Grog, uh, as I said, was a combination of many things, including rum uh, mixed with water to make it more potable, and... Um, some some citrus like lime juice and so forth uh, to prevent scurvy. It was introduced in 1740, and um, the word grog was it was derived from the the, the coat that Vice Ad, uh, Admiral Edward Vernon wore, which was a coat of grogum cloth, <laughs> nicknamed Old Grogum or Old Grog. And, and he introduced this beverage to prevent mutiny. And I think it, it, if you did an analysis, it, it may uh, have caused mutiny and prevented mutiny. Who knows, you know, how successful it was. But New Zealand and Australia, at some point during... Uh, the evolution of the word and its meaning just decided that grog meant spirits. <laughs> so we were drinking grog tonight and uh, we're washing down our rotten hamburgers. And I'm going <laughs> to just use that to punctuate my miserable McDonald's contribution. <laughs> <laughs> well, all is forgiven, Tim. I, I, will, I will toast you with a yes, an imaginary glass of grog. Right now, let me let me get and let me get some rum and some lime and some yeah. seawater and so <laughs> yeah. Here's to the, here's to the no, don't drink that. Here's to the inevitable blindness that we will now suffer. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. Cheers! Here's to Vice Admiral Vernon. Yeah. <laughs>